Yes, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. The Gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. So this is a very, very important passage in Mark. Also one of the more well-known, and it contains a lot of big pieces. The binding of the strong man, a house divided against itself, this phrase that was turned into a very famous speech by Abraham Lincoln. We see Jesus being accused of being in league with Satan or Beelzebub, and we have this enigmatic reference to the unpardonable sin, so-called blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And all of us would probably like to be certain we know what that is so we can presumably avoid it. Well, we're going to get to all of this, but it's actually going to take us a couple of weeks. So uh, you'll have to put a pen in this uh, unpardonable sin, and we'll get back to that um, next week. But the setting of this particular passage is that the teachers of the law, the scribes, whose hostility to Jesus has been growing all through chapter 2 and chapter 3, they seem to be getting quite a bit concerned, worried about Jesus, not concerned for his welfare, like his family seems to be, but worried that he's a legitimate threat to their authority and their standing among the everyday people. So they use a tactic that is very common even in our day, that is demonizing their opponent quite literally in this case. The scribes try to neutralize Jesus's ministry by connecting him with this mythic arch demon that everyone in that day would instinctively oppose, beazable. Now, this is a, a very peculiar, shape-shifting word that sort of seeped into our cultural consciousness through John Milton, John Bunyan, William Golding, and of course, Freddie Mercury, who sang that Beelzebub had a devil put aside just for him. So we've kind of heard this word, and the scribes are using it, attaching this name to Jesus in is quite obvious to them because they believed themselves to be God's representatives on earth. Always a very dangerous belief to have about yourself. So Jesus, if they are God's legitimate representatives on earth, then Jesus subverting their authority means that he must be in league with Satan himself. And we see this sort of defensive, offensive labeling today. We hear words that are cast about on to people uh, that may not even fit all that well, but the accuracy of the label doesn't matter. But we hear terms like socialist or communist or fascist. These are, these are scare words. And understanding the distinctions between these schools of thought really isn't the point, and it's not all that 
essential that the label accurately fits the opponent. What it does is it gives permission to one's followers to dismiss a challenger or a subversive idea without giving much thought. Now, the danger, of course, is that it gives people the permission to not only dismiss a dangerous idea, but to dismiss the humanity of the person who has the dangerous idea. And it's an exceedingly short distance between labeling someone and dehumanization, between political hostility and outright plain violence. The teachers of the law, verse 22, who came down from Jerusalem said of Jesus, he is possessed by Beelzebul. Now this term was originally the name for a Philistine god, and it was adopted kind of by cultural osmosis as a major demon in the Abrahamic faiths. Beelzebul is often called the prince of demons, and his name derives from Baal, which we know, and Zebub, meaning Lord of the Flies, which is where the novel that we all read in middle school got its name. The Lord of the Flies was the beast, the, the cowhead that Ralph finds in Lord of the Flies, and which regarded him as one who knows all all the answers, but won't tell. And the beast filled him, the Lord of Flies filled him with sick fear and rage. We see this conflict in Ralph that so much of humanity has had towards the demonic. We see this conflict of sort of revulsion and attraction that can turn into an obsession. But there's really no conflict in Mark's day. The scribes were connecting Jesus with a menacing, demonic evil that would have given everyone a sick fear and rage. Now, Jesus tells them in a response that we'll look at more deeply next week, basically, hey, if I'm in thrall to Satan or Satan, as it is more accurately pronounced, then what about all these people who have been healed, all these people released from their satanic possession? That doesn't seem like a very sound strategy for Satan to employ. How can, Jesus says, Satan drive out Satan? Well, their power was so threatened that they were ramping up the rhetoric And Mark wants us to see that it wasn't, however, just them who were suspicious about Jesus. It was his own family that were deeply concerned. They were worried that Jesus was insane, and they staged an intervention. They arrived at this house where Jesus is to take charge of him not out of hostility or self-protection, but out of concern for his well-being. One current or contemporary translation renders verse 21, when Jesus' family heard what he was doing, 
they thought he was crazy and went to get him under control. There's a, a fascinating book in my office uh, called First Rate Madness, and it's written by a psychiatrist who argues that many of the most famous and effective leaders in history were mentally ill, or as we would say it in common parlance, they were a little crazy. Lincoln, Churchill, Roosevelt, King, Kennedy, Mother Teresa, there's a certain level of pain tolerance, of sacrifice, of willingness to risk, a certain fearlessness, and a willingness to buck the system, to be an iconoclast that may even require a level of mental instability, or at least, as in Jesus's case, a mental nonconformity, that this is almost required to achieve historic greatness. In some ways, it seems perfectly reasonable, doesn't it, for Jesus's family to be deeply worried about him. They said he's out of his mind. And in some ways, he was, wasn't he? Wasn't Harriet Tubman a bit mad to escape from slavery only to return to rescue others? Wasn't Gandhi a bit mad to stand up against the caste system in India? Wasn't Martin Luther King a bit crazy to oppose the entrenched white power in the Jim Crow South? What about the anonymous student who stood in front of the tank in Tiananmen Square and was never seen again? Weren't these people all a bit eccentric, a bit mad? Jesus had to have been a little bit mad to live the way that he did and to say the things that he said. Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who despitefully use you. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Do not repay evil for evil or abuse for abuse. But on the contrary, we repay with a blessing. The greatest among you will be your servant. And then maybe craziest of all, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Forgive me for saying it this way, but Jesus was a bit crazy. He was crazy to his family because his life revolved around a completely different center than his family, than the scribes, than the surrounding world lived by, revolved around. And that center, we are told in verse 35, is the doing of God's will. Now, maybe that doesn't sound all that crazy. It doesn't sound like something that will get you killed. But the doing of God's will in the face of 
religious and imperial leaders exploiting the poor and the vulnerable, that's a bit mad. The doing of God's will when the most religious people in town are also the most corrupt, it's very dangerous. The doing of God's will when his opponents have the cross, that is crazy. What would the world today look like if more of Jesus' followers were as crazy as him? Crazy enough to love like him. Crazy enough to give like him. Crazy enough to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with God like Jesus. Crazy enough, as Bishop Michael Curry says, to dare to change the world from the nightmare it often is into something closer to the dream that God dreams for it. What would the world look like if Christians today were crazy enough to dare to change the world from the nightmare that it often is to something closer to the dream that God dreams for it? The challenge in doing that and what makes it a bit of a crazy, insane life choice is that the dreams that God has for his world is for his people to do his will. And that means living every day with enemy love, every day forgiveness, every day self-sacrifice and service, everyday resistance to the powers of exploitation and exclusion in our world, everyday dying for the life of the world. This kind of life is truly crazy if the world is all there is, but it's the very definition of sanity to those who are followers of Jesus and dream with him about a new and a coming world. Maybe, in other words, it's not Jesus, but the world's dominant values that are off-center. If Jesus lived this way, and he is, as we believe, not only truly God, but truly human, then the the doing of God's will is the most sane, the most human thing that we can do. It's the most human life that we can live. The one who does the will of God, contrary to expectation, is becoming his or her own truest and deepest self, the person of joy that they were created to be a person who is centered and free and welcoming and loving. So for all of in town, for you, for me, may the doing of God's will this week drive us all a little bit more sane. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that we would be 
the sanest people on earth, the people that might look off kilter and off center to a world that runs on the values of power and greed and getting more and more for ourselves and for our tribe. Father, I pray that we would look a bit crazy to that world and that we would look askance at it, a world that operates as if this is the only world there is and that there's no deeper reality. Father, I pray that we would live into that deeper reality this week. I pray that we would live lives of everyday sacrifice, everyday enemy love, not because we have to, not because it's our duty, but because it's our joy to live lives like you did. And we pray that your life would not only be our model, but that we would receive it as our own in your self-sacrifice and in your resurrection. We pray in your name. Amen. So as we move to our time of communion, let's take a moment to confess our faith because taking communion is an active profession, an active confession of what we believe. And so let's do that now. This is using a paraphrase of 1 Corinthians 15 and Revelation 22. Christian, what do you believe? Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried and was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. We come to the table of grace that Jesus sets before us, before us, and it is a table by which he further dispenses the good news, the good news of his shed blood and his broken body and his resurrection. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke the bread, and he says, this is my body. It is given for you. Eat this all in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Drink this all in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat of this bread or you drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And therefore, for many, many centuries, Christians have proclaimed the mystery of the faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Christ, our Passover, he is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. These are the gifts of God and they're for the people of God. So feed on him in your hearts by faith and with great thanksgiving. We'll take a few moments now to uh, actually administer and take communion. Um, so if you could do so now, um, in your own way, uh, we'll give you a few moments before Matt calls us uh, back together.
Jesus, Lord of life and glory, bend from heaven thy gracious ear. While our waiting souls adore thee, friends of helpless sinners here. From the hardening power of sin, from all malice and unkindness, from the pride that lurks within, by thy mercy, oh, deliver us, good
All right, I'm going to give us now the benediction, but don't leave. We'll have a uh, time of sort of community hangout after uh, the doxology and the sending. So hope you can stick around. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen. Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Now let us go forth to serve the world as those who love our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. It is continues to be wonderful to be able to spend this time with you, and um, I hope that you have enjoyed uh, the time after the service where we get to just talk and everyone um, has an opportunity to kind of welcome, invite people into their lives, into their story. And we're going to try and maintain some of that just community, open conversation feel. 
Um, but we're also going to have, um, try to capitalize on this time where we're all gathered together as a church and all present uh, to basically hear more voices about some of the um, decisions that face the church as well as some of the opportunities and the things that maybe we could leverage this time uh, to do um, with the time, resources, and so forth that we have. So um, next week, what we thought we would do um, is to at least start a discussion that would be sort of diaconal in nature. It seems um, that most encounters are at the moment um, vocationally whole. And now that we have kind of, that we have completed uh, the matching gift, which part of which was meant to kind of carry us through what we expect to be kind of a, a potentially lean time, um, not knowing when we will be able to come back and worship together and kind of do business as usual. Um, that matching gift was partly for that and also to give us resources for the needs within our congregation as well as those uh, beyond. And Peter Evers, one of our deacons, uh, wanted uh, or kind of initiated the idea that we would have a discussion at the larger level that if uh, if needs uh, at within in town are minimal at the moment, are there some ways that we can talk about that we can ideate around serving people who um, are not in front of you on your computer, those that we are in relationship with individually, um, as well as those we might just be in contact with that are outside of the orbit of the church. How can we serve our neighbors during this time? So we're going to use some time next week, and I'll prompt you with an email about that uh, to talk about that. And then um, the following week, um, as we get more information from uh, the governor and get kind of a tentative timeline and what it might look like for in town to meet in some capacity uh, together in person. Uh, we wanted to hear from all of you, especially those that are in our congregation that might uh, be a part of what has uh, uh, we've been calling vulnerable populations. What would it look like um, as we think about coming back together. And again, this may be weeks, it might be a month, it might be longer before that happens uh, at any large level. Um, but we want to kind of have take the time to forward think about um, some of those things. So those are the next two weeks, um, topically speaking, uh, how we'll use some of this uh, time of open conversation. Um, but if you have been following uh, the chat, uh, the last um, maybe five minutes or 10 minutes, Richard put some really great um, questions uh, that I think would be helpful to um, talk about. If anything has kind of struck a chord with you, um, maybe a, a challenge, maybe a, a sense of, of distance from, from God, um, maybe a, a praise, a thanksgiving, something that has surprised you where his presence has been particularly um, uh, real to you. So um, why don't we um, take a few moments uh, to
to talk about that. And um, again, using the chat feature to raise your hand to talk. You can try this, but we may not see you. The best way to, um, to do that, to indicate that you'd like to share or have a question is just to put your name in the chat box and say, I have a question or a thought, or I'd like to talk, anything like that. And uh, one of the admins will uh, give you the forum and un uh, give you the floor, I should say, and unmute you.